Hey, it's Adam Ragusea, and there's a guy who also makes food videos on YouTube you might have heard of. His name is Ondong. Kinda. He and I are going to talk about work, and borscht, and his being a content creator of Eastern European descent in the present time of war. And then we're going to do Adam's Failure of the Week, and some audience Q&A. J.W. White J. wants to know if I'm still on the fence about cast iron pans. I'll let you know. But first, here's Andong. I've been doing this for four and a half years now, and I focus on uh, unusual takes on food from all around the world and uh, how we ended up eating the things we're eating. I feel I feel silly asking you why your channel is called My Name is Andong, considering that your name is Andong. Um, but then again, you could have just called it Andong, right? Like, so, so where'd the name come from? Well, that's okay. That that's a longer story because my name is not actually Andong. My legal name is a Russian name. So I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, or actually it was called Leningrad Soviet Union back then. <laughs> I was born in the last days of the Soviet Union. And my legal name is Arsini. And it just, uh, then I moved to Germany, which is where I grew up in Berlin, Germany. And it was already really tricky to translate this Russian sounding name into German. And when you transcribe it to a version that sounds decent in spoken English, it just sounds absolutely nothing like my original name, neither the Russian version nor the German version that I grew up with. So I was like, okay, I might as well just choose a completely new name to work with uh, on the internet. Uh, that also like when I say it, that people kind of know how to write it or have a chance of knowing how to write it. And I ended up choosing my Chinese name, which is Andong, which is based on my middle name, Anton, much simpler. Um, and that came about because I, I studied Chinese, actually, Chinese studies in university. I lived in China for a while, and that's where I discovered my passion for food. So in the place where I discovered my passion for food, everyone kept calling me Andong. So I was like, that's, that's a good match. Let's just roll with Andong for my like, food YouTube endeavor. That's how I ended up being my name is Andong, even though my name is not actually Andong. It's a declaration. It's an affirmation. It's a declaration. Exactly. That's Love it. it. <laughs> so you're Russian and uh, you confessed recently in a video that you don't actually like borscht. No, I don't. I'm not a big fan of borscht. I think uh, it's just like a little, like a little food issue I have. I don't like any cabbage-based soups or stews. I think they taste very one-dimensional. And I know there wow. are many of them. And it's not like I can't eat them. I think they're fine. You just pissed off your I Russian like, fans and your Chinese fans right there by dissing cabbage. Uh, I'm not dissing cabbage. I, I love cabbage. I just don't like cabbage-based soups. They're, because the cabbage flavor just takes over. And it just tastes like cabbage soup. And so does borscht. Um, also not a huge fan of beetroot. So yeah. So then recently I took up, like I took on, uh, I took on this challenge and I figured why not try making, um, a borscht that I like. And I did some research and I think the two things that I were, was missing were beef, which not all borscht is made with beef. There are a lot of vegetarian, uh, versions of borscht and my family tends to make the vegetarian versions. Uh, but I got to admit, even though I appreciate vegetarian food, it's a lot better with beef. And then also my secret addition was uh, kimchi, which I think really takes borscht to the next level. It's great. But I also, like you, right. I have 
I have trouble with beats, and it sucks because like you I do. beat beats are so beautiful and they're so I mean they're just gorgeous and they're healthy and but like I just I grew up my parents grew beets in the garden and they pickled them and it's just like a child being asked to eat pickled beets is just is just asking for <laughs> lifelong trauma. Precisely, uh. precisely, and also like quite similarly, mine weren't pickled. But I grew up eating a lot of beetroot-based food. There was a lot of borscht. There was a lot of what Russians call vinaigrette, which has nothing to do with what you think of when you hear vinaigrette. It is a beetroot-based. It's like, a, imagine a potato salad with sauerkraut and beetroot. That would be it. Oh, the, the Ukrainians add sauerkraut and the Russians add pickles, pickled cucumbers, that is. Um, but yeah, that's, but that's what they call vinaigrette. I don't know why. Um, yeah. And then there's also like all sorts of like beetroot with, uh, with, with cream to make, to make all sorts of like sort of gefilte the fish style things like fish with like a layer of like beetroot salad and that kind of stuff. And I, I had so much of this and I gotta say, like, especially when I was a kid, I was not the biggest fan of this, the earthy flavor of beetroot. These days I can kind of appreciate it. Do you, um, I feel bad, but like, given that, like, you know, people are going to be wondering, um, you're Russian and you're in Europe. Do you want to talk about the thing? The thing? Um, sure. I can, I can yeah. talk about the thing. Um, and the thing, I mean, I, I, I assume you refer, you refer to, to the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it sucks. We have just, just like two kilometers from here is Berlin's main train station. We have like 10,000 plus refugees arriving every day from Ukraine. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's rough. And like with my family being Russian, it's even more rough. My grandparents are still, are still around and they're in, in St. Petersburg right now. And we're like, well, I don't know because I have dual citizenship. So while I, re until quite recently, I was like, cool with my grandparents, if anything's up, I can always fly over, hang out with them, help out if they need me. Uh, but now if I yeah. travel to Russia, I'm, I'm like at risk of just being, they might not let me out again. They're like, nope, actually you're staying here and you're going to go and shoot some Ukrainians now. No, not going to happen. So basically I'm cut off from, from seeing my grandparents and they're old. So <laughs> what do you do? Uh, that sucks. So like it affected my family personally. And then obviously on a, on a higher level, like me and all of my family, we hate that there's war. And like my, my grandparents, like having grown up in the Soviet Union and being like sort of, in a sense, patriotic Russians mm -hmm. in, let's say, the best possible the, like, interpretation of the word patriotic. But like, yeah, they, they're no, not nuts or anything. So they might have a slightly different view than me about like um, how, how much of its own nation is Ukraine actually. Like their opinion might differ slightly. But not not a ton actually. They're definitely not brainwashed. But like they, but most importantly, they just think it's absolutely ridiculous that there's a war between Russia and Ukraine. Like it's just unfathomable to them. Like those, like half of my family, like the ancestors of my family, are have been born in like Eastern Europe and Ukraine in like the territory of like Ukraine, Belarus, and they all moved to Russia. It's like really, it's just such a fluid like region and not just because of the Soviet union, but like for centuries, there was just, there are like family connections and everything. And it's just absurd that these, 
it's it's like imagine a war between the U.S. and Canada. Like that's probably how absurd that would be. Yes, that would be crazy, even if us Americans and the Canadians occasionally joke about it. Joking is as far as it's going to get, knock on wood, because almost anything is better than war, and literally anything is better than nuclear war. We'll chat more with His Name is Andong in just a second. His work and mine would be totally impossible without the generous support of our sponsors. And I'm happy to say that episode number three of the new Ragusia podcast is sponsored by Vessi, a very cool sneaker company out of Vancouver, speaking of Canada, where they know from the rain. And Vessis are 100% waterproof. They are rain and snowproof sneakers that don't look or feel like dorky boots. They are super sexy, sleek, modern street sneakers. I've been wearing a pair for almost a year now. The material they're made of is called Dymatex, which is a no-animal product fabric that does not feel like it should be waterproof. It is incredibly lightweight and breathable, and Vessi uses a knitting process that minimizes material, thus making it more sustainable and also lighter. I do not live in Canada. I live in Tennessee. It is wet here, but it is also hot, and these keep my feet cool and dry all year long. Vessi soles are bouncy and comfy, and they're antibacterial to keep your kicks smelling fresh. They have a variety of designs, but the ones that I like are kind of muted and, and kind of classy enough that I can wear them with a variety of outfits. Like I could wear these with a biz cash outfit one minute, and then I could go work out at them the next. Go to Vessi.com slash Adam. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash Adam. Use my code Adam at checkout and save 25 bucks on any pair of Vessi sneaks. Free shipping also to most of the countries where you are, according to my analytics. Use my Lincoln code in the show notes for $25 off your waterproof sneaks from Vessi. Thank you, Vessi. All right, back to His Name is Andong. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the war in Ukraine before we move on to things that are not horrible. Has it affected your, your work? Like, did you think for a second maybe... Maybe now isn't a great time to do a Borscht video. It could just be perceived as some sort yeah. of political statement or something. Yeah, when I did the Borscht video, that was still before the invasion happened. Oh, you did? Uh, okay, like sorry. Just, to, yeah. just, just, but like briefly, briefly, like a, a week or two before it happened. Huh. Um, and so, but I, but it was like already like on the horizon, you know, like like troops stationed and everything. <laughs> Yeah. And I did that. And like, I remember when I wrote the script for the video, I made a point of like saying, not just saying like, this is a Russian Porsche. This is a Russian Porsche. I, like, I, I made sure to say Eastern European staple soup and like yeah. very popular in Russia and Ukraine and these kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. I did that. I did that in the video. I remember because it was like already on the horizon and just the fact that there were troops stationed around Ukraine, I made sure to, to phrase things carefully but yeah like i i had no idea it was going to escalate like that and i probably would not have made that video if i knew there was going to be an actual full-on war but i mean but and now and now oh i mean i had big plans actually for so that borscht video is actually the very reduced version of what i wanted to do for a long time i was actually going to do a very elaborate borscht video where i travel to Russia and then to Ukraine and like, because I have the advantage of speaking the language and yeah. in Ukraine, almost everyone speaks Russian. So I, I was like, I'm going to like do a big like research tour about Borscht. I really wanted to. And first there was COVID. 
So traveling was difficult. And once COVID like started like almost being over, at least in terms of traveling, like you could sort of safely travel. Yeah, then then a war broke out. So that fully like <laughs> canceled like all the plans I had for a bigger Borscht video. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I also wanted to uh, do a lot more about Russian food, which I just can't. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I can't, but I'm not going to touch Russian food for a while now, which sucks because that's, one of the few foods that I have a deep connection to, you know, because uh, my family's from there. But yeah, not going to happen. Not going to happen. So it's like, yeah, this, this, this stupid war, it has n- no positive side effects. I literally, because I, I, I've been a little, I'm a little obsessed with it and very kind of like worried about it and on a number of levels, um, mm. mostly just because I just, I feel like the the world has gotten far too unafraid of nuclear war. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. but anyway, so like I watched lots of videos about, you know, military tactics and stuff that we're learning about what's happening there. And you know, I try to like use my, um, my community channel to just like boost other creators sometimes, like just, you know, whenever someone watches, mm-hmm. makes a video that I think is really good and someone else might want to watch it, even if it's not food related, I'll just post it to my community channel and just say, Hey, this, this person is doing something great. You should check them out. And I, mm-hmm. and it was like not a political video. It was just like a cold, cold ass military tactics kind of video. And like the number of like politically charged posts and everybody who's like accusing me of like being paid by the U S state department and like all kinds of shit in the comments. And it's just like, of course it's, hor- it's horrifying what this has done to people's brains, you know? Yeah. It's horrifying. There's so much, because, like, especially for creators, like, I, I, I think you are also one of these creators, but, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, you are somebody who likes to talk about food, but not just talk about, like, recipes and how much pepper exactly, you put yes. into a dish. So, it's so funny. And people just, like, stick to cooking, man. And it's like, when have I ever stuck to cooking? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But I think especially for creators like like us, then um, – it's like you want to you wanna bring more of a, like a social dimension and like a kind of like let's connect the dots on like a geopolitical thing uh, when it comes to food or something. It's like there's just, there's, it's just so dangerous. Like all, all like there's a few people who are, who are really going to appreciate it, but then it's going to spark so much outrage in the comments, no matter how carefully you are, no matter how carefully you phrase yourself. And it's like, actually, even if you just stick to food, the conversations yeah. of like where something is from. I mean, oh, yeah. we all know how toxic <laughs> those can get, right? On the other hand, though, once you once you uh, once you have a certain reach, people will come to you, no matter what type of creator you are. Like, for example, like I'm a food creator, but now that the war in Ukraine broke out, um, I was approached by people, and I know they mean well. And they just probably haven't seen my borscht video, but they're like, "Hey, you should make a video about borscht." <laughs> and tell people that it's Ukrainian, not Russian. Right, yeah, yeah. And like share some Ukrainian culture and like and like speak out and like share all these links about how to support the Ukrainian government and that kind of stuff. So at the same time, people want you to use your reach to help them spread their sometimes political or social justice ideas. But on the other hand, once you do that, a lot of people will get really unhappy in the comments. And that's how a lot of people, I think, end up just saying, you know what, fuck it. I'm just not going to touch any of this. I'm just going to be a super watered down, mellow food creator and just live in my peaceful food bubble and not touch anything else. I don't know. I'm, I'm still not convinced. I still think that uh, 
it's a cool thing to try to combine food uh, and other topics. But it's well, a it's, it's because a they long, they are connected, struggle. whether people want them to be or not. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Anything else we should talk about? <laughs> Can we end on something more fun than that? Something more fun. Yeah. Let's. What are you working on currently? Um, I am doing my 16 minute opus on why sheep tastes like sheep that I've been. Oh, that gamey taste you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had this one in the cooker for like months and I'm super excited. It's finally kind of coming down. What was so much fun is that it's like, there's really, there's really only one place in the United States where like white people still eat mutton as like a matter of tradition. Um, Uh and it's, and it's Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard about this, but like Western Kentucky has this weird tradition of using uh, mutton for barbecue. Um, and, and I was just like, I was, oh my God. It's, I, was, I was like, I can't, I, I, I want it. Cause I want, I had all the, like the science research for this video done months ago, but I was like, I just, I gotta go to Owensboro, Kentucky, man. Like, uh, and you know, it's, it's a, six hour drive away, but we did a trip where it was vaguely on the way to someplace else. And yeah, I just like, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> left my family in the car. They were in you know, air conditioned car outside for five minutes. I just like ran into this restaurant. I ordered a sandwich. I like got down in a corner booth and set up like, you know, my camera and a little pocket light that I have. And I just ate this sandwich and it was, God, it was so great. It was so great. And <laughs> and then I like, and then I walked out and I'm just, I'm so happy that like, and it's, it's this, like, it's literally like the footage, it's like 45 seconds of footage at the end of this video. And I drove to Owensboro, Kentucky for it, but it was so worth it. And I'm just so happy about it. It's always like, whenever, like whenever I put this like unreasonable amount of extra effort into a video, I'm always like, this is probably stupid. Because nobody's going to care. But you know what? I noticed that these videos do the best long term. Really? Like they Interesting. Might not be, yeah. Like the videos, almost every single, there, there are exceptions, but almost every single video that I put like, like this extra effort where I went the extra mile, that those videos, they tend to have the best shelf life. They just tend to like bring me like extra subscribers and views and inspire people for like years to come so in a way that shows so in a way that shows um yeah but like i definitely know this feeling of like you taking this like unreasonably long trip just to taste the sandwich for 45 seconds of footage but it's good i'm looking forward to those 45 seconds quite the, yeah. quite a lot can i ask you something now that you mentioned mutton sure. um is it true that it's difficult to get veal in the united states it is not as e- easy to find now as it was when I was young, for sure. Um, it used to be, a, at least in the east, at least in the eastern United States, it was a pretty common feature on, you know, fancy menus. Italian places all had veal something. There was usually a mm-hmm. small veal section in the in the grocery store, and now I can sometimes find veal at the grocery store, but um, there's usually not like a, a whole little section. There's just like one like one thing will be for sale. Um, which I is see, funny, which is funny. Cause it's like the, the, the backlash against veal was, was provoked by legit horrific treatment of veal calves. But what's mm-hmm. funny is that it's like the industry really has cleaned itself up a lot 
um, mostly mm-hmm. mostly with self-regulation, but the damage that they did to themselves is done and people don't mm-hmm. want to feel. And, and I don't know how, if I really yeah. like weep, weep for veal. I mean, even putting mm-hmm. aside the, even putting aside the humanitarian aspect of it, it's like, it's, do I really want beef that tastes less beefy? I don't know. Do you, Andong? Um, I don't know. I mean, I asked about veal specifically because like two things that are very popular to eat here. Oh, how the schnitzel, yeah. I mean, the schnitzel, which is actually Austrian. So the classic Viennese oh, so, oh, schnitzel so is the veal so schnitzel. Sorry. Well, and then the other thing, but that doesn't make it less popular here. Although like the everyday schnitzel, I, I will admit, is made from pork in Germany. Because mm. also like a German schnitzel is actually pork and a Viennese one is veal, but I like going to split hairs here. The, the, the classic is uh, veal. And then also, um, I would say the food that people who grew up, like me, who grew up in Berlin, eat the most is uh, döner kebab, which is a, mm. the, the rotisserie. No, not rotisserie. Like a, a vertical rotating spit with uh, layered veal, traditionally. And um, that makes um, like kebab sandwiches that are very delicious. And that are, of course, a Turkish thing traditionally, but mm-hmm. Turkish population is huge here in Germany. And German, German food itself is, it's not bad, but it's not spectacular or like usually not the kind of food you find on Instagram a lot. Oh, I and, love uh, it though. Just go, well, cause you know, you know about me and acid if you've watched any of my videos and just like, yeah, 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 yeah. so much vinegar, <laughs> so much pickling. I love it. Love it. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That that we have. That we have. Yeah. Um, but then, like, still, like in in real life, like traditional German food. I, I'm going to go out and say that growing up in Berlin, at least, you hardly ever have traditional German food. You just have like kind of like modern day global convenience food a lot. You yeah. know, like your pastas and all of that kind of stuff. Or you have like street food, which is going to be a kebab. So that's Turkish yeah. food, and it's often made from veal, uh, the traditional kebab. So. That's what I was asking. I was just showing Ethan Schabowski, who visited mm-hmm. Berlin a few days ago, around, and yeah. we had a couple of donors. And uh, he was like, yeah, veal is not super easy to come by. So yeah. that's that's why I wanted to ask, since we were talking about like meat that is not beef, pork, or chicken. Well, when there are no longer plagues and wars, I look forward to uh, yeah. getting over there and trying a doner kebab myself. Please do, and I will be happy to show you around, Adam. you got to subscribe to My Name is Ondong on YouTube. He also does short-form stuff on Instagram and TikTok. He's like me, but has a much more friendly on-air persona and much better camera work and editing because he works with a whole awesome team of people. I just sit in my kitchen by myself and screw things up. Speaking of which, here's how I failed this week. I missed two appointments. This may sound like not a big deal, but it is for me in the sense that once I've missed something, I become psychologically incapable of picking it back up again. I missed a business meeting with someone at YouTube and another meeting with a very important person in book publishing about a potential cookbook project. And even though I kind of doubt that a cookbook is a good idea, at least in the context of traditional publishing, I should not have missed that meeting. I had good reasons for missing these appointments. I did not just space out on them. I've had a lot of extra business stuff going on the last few weeks. Speaking of which, the Adam Ragusea chef knife sold out in less than a week. So thanks so much to everybody who bought one. Most of them have already shipped. 
The rest should ship out on Monday. That sale went really well, so we're probably going to make some more and sell them toward the end of the year. Shipping internationally this time, fingers crossed. Anyway, yeah, business has been crazy, and I've had several business-related emergencies to deal with in addition to my normal personal and family responsibilities, which are numerous, so I missed two meetings. It is also the case that I am fundamentally uncomfortable around other people, and when I ghost on them, I become extra anxious about ever talking to them again. The anxiety grows exponentially as the clock ticks following that initial act of ghosting on my part. As more and more time passes, I become more and more nervous to call them back because I haven't called them back. I don't feel I can explain to them why I took so long calling them back, so I don't call them back. The reason I don't call them back is because I haven't called them back. A vicious circle, I believe this is called. And I really figured that by the time I was 40 damn years old, I would have worked through these aspects of my personality, and yet here we are. I'd like to think that my public confession of this problem will amount to some kind of curative act of catharsis, but it probably won't. A more realistic goal for this confession is to show you out there, especially you young people, which is most of you, I'm going to show you that a grown-ass adult can be successful, both personally and professionally, while simultaneously exhibiting some basic social dysfunctions that you would expect from someone who is not grown ass. It happens. We'll get to answering some of your questions in two seconds, but first, real quick, let me thank Helix Sleep for sponsoring episode three of the Ragusea pod. Helix Sleep is a company that is able, through some kind of logistics magic, to send you an incredibly high-quality mattress in a relatively small box in the mail under compression. You break the seal and it inflates. The one that we sleep on is the Dusk Lux, which is a hybrid spring and foam mattress. It is crazy comfortable. But what you should do if you're in the mattress market is go to helixsleep.com slash ragusia and take their sleep quiz. You tell them how you and any of your bedmates are shaped, generally speaking. You tell them how you sleep, like on what part of your body, all of that, and they will recommend a specific mattress for you. They can even send you like a cooling mattress if you get too hot at night. That's a problem Lauren has. They can send you mattresses for spinal alignment, whatever. And then when you buy your mattress for up to $200 off, if you use my link that's in the show notes, it'll show up at your house in a box that you can carry like right through your door and up to the bedroom. There's no movers necessary. This is a mattress that got a number one best overall pick from both GQ and Wired magazines in 2021. It ships for free. There's a 10-year warranty, and you can sleep on it for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't like it, Helix will come take it away. So go to helixsleep.com slash to save up to $200 on any mattress order, plus get two free pillows. Thank you, Helix. And now it is time for... Ask Adam... Gatto0323 asks, FMK, onion, garlic, and salt. I suppose it should be or salt, Gatto. FMK, onion, garlic, or salt. Well, I suppose I'd fuck garlic because garlic is a fundamentally sexy substance. I would marry salt 
because salt is indispensable in every sense of the word. You need salt in your life for the rest of your life, which is what marriage is all about. Salt is an essential nutrient. Your body could not function without sodium and chloride ions, crucial electrically charged dissolved minerals, a.k.a. electrolytes, a.k.a. the things that maintain your blood pressure and your pH, which your body does just fine, regardless of whether you eat acidic or alkaline diets, by the way. Your body holds a constant pH. Electrolytes also help carry nerve impulses for muscle contractions and such. Without them, you would lose all control of yourself. And the chloride from salt is a real unsung hero. Your body needs chloride for all of the above and also to make and release stomach acid. So sodium chloride is essential, which is why I would marry it. Plus, basically all food tastes bad without some amount of salt. That does not necessarily mean you have to add salt. Foods generally contain some amount of salt naturally. Fruits, for example. Meat, too. So, marry salt, because you gotta have it. Gotta lock that shit down. Put a ring on it. And I don't want to kill any of these, but I suppose onion is the most dispensable of the three to me. So yeah, kill the onion. Though I would rather not. Onion is to savory foods as vanilla is to sweet foods, at least in Western cuisine. By that, I mean onion is so ubiquitous that you take it for granted and you might not even perceive it on a conscious level. But if you start leaving it out of recipes, you notice real quick and you miss it. That's a good idea for a video, by the way. So thank you. Aced Arts asks, what is the best way to hide the body? Dark clothing. And blazers over top to kind of tent around the body and conceal its shape. And then what you want are tight shots, tight camera angles that only get you from like the chest up. Basically, the Steven Seagal bag of tricks will be great for hiding the body. And before anybody comments, yes, I know that's not what Aced Arts was asking. I am being wry. Corlock notes that I was a music major in college and grad school. Me, Adam, I was. But Corlock asks, as a young music major myself, what was your experience with burnout, plateauing, or just generally feeling like you were not moving forward? How did you counter this? I didn't, Corlock. I did not counter it. I burned out. I plateaued, and I ceased moving forward in music which I no longer regard as a bad thing. You go to school to learn things about the external and the internal, to learn things about yourself, including what you're good at and what you're not good at. I was good at music, but I was not great. And with the music industry having all but collapsed during my lifetime, there is now no room in it for lots of great people, let alone is there room for all the people who are good or all the people who are barely passable. I tend to think that if you're trying to do something for which there is little to no market, then you had better be great at it and obsessed with it. And if you're not, then you kind of have no business being there. There aren't enough seats on that bus for the geniuses. So if you're not a genius, then I think you should get up and give your seat to one of them. Now, one of the many reasons I think the advice I just gave might be very bad advice is that I think it's very hard to assess whether someone is a genius, especially yourself. There are many kinds of genius. There are genius musicians 
who've made enormous contributions to the culture while at the same time being truly terrible musicians in at least a few subcategories of assessment. People who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, for example, and yet they had some other musical ability that changed the world. There are lots of kinds of genius that are not immediately forthcoming or are not immediately recognized, perhaps because they are novel. And what a shame it would be if novel genius never got the chance to express itself, especially if it were snuffed out by a pointless war, for example. The piece of advice that I'm more sure about is to say that education is the process of learning the internal as well as the external, and learning what you are not good at is at least as important as learning what you are good at. And the only way to learn these things is to try stuff and fail. Failure is not only okay, it is essential to growth. In school as well as in the gym. Get them gains. So if you find that you're not actually a music genius, then I say stop and do something else. You have not wasted any time. You learned a lot. You hopefully had a lot of fun along the way. So be enriched by those experiences and carry those lessons into the next phase of your life. That's what I did. It got me this far. Happy asks, what's your mic setup and how do you sound so crisp? Thank you, Happy. I'm not sure that I always sound so crisp. I have been liking this new Shure SM7B that I bought for the pod corner in the basement. This is one of the all-time classic radio microphones in service in some form for half a century now. But microphones don't matter nearly as much as the spatial relation between the microphone and the thing you're trying to record and the space in which you are recording. So chiefly, I sound crispy right now because I'm talking almost right into the mic. And I'm in a foamed-out corner of my basement. My basement that already has wall-to-wall carpet on the floor and acoustical office tile in the ceiling. These are all soft, irregular surfaces that absorb and or disperse sound waves rather than reflecting them. In contrast, when I have to record audio in my kitchen, that is a total nightmare. Kitchens are filled with smooth, hard surfaces that are easy to clean. That's why they're there. But they reflect sound waves like whoa. So you get tons of nasty echo in the sound. When I do my talking headshots in the kitchen where I'm talking to the camera, I use this lavalier microphone that I just tape right under my shirt right here. And so there's a very short trip between my mouth and the mic. That's good. And then I take a ton of loose foam panels that I have in the garage and I use them to temporarily coat the wall that is opposite me in those shots. That wall is conveniently behind the camera as well, so you never see it. Though if you're curious, I recently posted a picture of this to my Instagram, Aragusia on Instagram. I set up and tear down a whole wall of foam for every talking head shot that I do in the kitchen. And even then, there's still a ton of echo. There are computer programs, audio plugins that you can buy for a fair bit of money that claim to be able to eliminate reverberation. I think they all suck and sound awful. The post-production processing I do use that makes for crisp sound is I roll off the low frequencies. That is, I filter out almost everything below 150 hertz or so in my voice. All those super low frequencies do is make voices sound muddy. They do nothing else. And I sometimes boost some of the upper mid frequencies, at least on my voice, I find that helps. And I use a lot of compression. 
And in this context, compression means processing that makes the quiet moments louder and the louder moments quieter. It evens everything out. Too much compression has made contemporary rock music virtually unlistenable, in my opinion, but it makes spoken content far easier to listen to. Rise Rampage asks, what are your thoughts on the existence of life? Well, I think that life is the inevitable result of organic chemistry. Life will happen spontaneously anywhere the basic necessary conditions and raw materials are available. I suspect the universe is teeming with life and likely intelligent life. However, I think the spatial and temporal distances between us are so great that we will likely never have any contact with any other intelligent species, and that sucks. Ladnerian Rye wants to know, what are your religious beliefs? I believe religion is a thing invented by humans. And when I was young, I believed religion to be an overwhelmingly bad thing. Now, as an older person, I'm not so sure. However, it seems to be a natural and inevitable process that as societies get more prosperous and educated, religion tends to fade. And I think that's just fine and to be expected. I do wish that there were more non-religious communitarian institutions available to me. We go to my mother-in-law's Episcopal Church sometimes, and I really like many aspects of that. And I feel we need to try to retain some form of that in the inevitable post-religion future. And finally, in a subject closely related to religion, J.W. White J. asks, Are you still on the fence about cast iron or has it grown on you? Well, I like cast iron just fine. I think it's a great option for lots of people, chiefly, as I said in that video, because it's the least expensive way to make a really good pan. Thanks to you, dear audience, and to the patronage of my sponsors, I can afford really good stainless steel cookware now, and I generally think that it is superior. Thanks to globalization, though, there is very good stainless cookware on the market now that is not that much more expensive than cast iron. So the company Misen has sponsored me in the past, but this is not a sponsored message. I'm saying this right now because I think it's true. I think they make some really good stainless pieces that are not that much more expensive than cast iron. And a good, heavy stainless steel pan works great and is far easier to clean and to care for, especially in a humid climate like the one that I live in. Stuff rusts much easier in humid air. I do have a 100-year-old 10-inch cast iron piece from Alabama that my dear friend David Ragsdale restored and gave to me several years ago. He has a side business that you can patronize. It's called What's Up Homer Skillet. Just Google that, What's Up Homer Skillet. And he's got a ton of beautiful historic pieces restored that you can buy. And I love that cast iron pan, and I use it all the time. But we have to be honest that the nonstick coating you get by seasoning a cast iron or high carbon steel pan is nowhere remotely as effective as Teflon. So when I really need nonstick, I reach for the one good Teflon pan that I have for that purpose. It's like a specialist. There are good and bad reasons to want to avoid Teflon. A bad reason would be you're worried that it's bad for your health. It probably isn't. I have a whole video about that that you could search for and watch. A good reason to avoid Teflon is the factories that make it deposit lots of potentially harmful chemicals into the environment. 
I'm really not sure if the total environmental impact of a cast iron pan is better than that of a Teflon pan, but I think it might be. So yeah, that's a reason to not use Teflon. But of course, you do use Teflon, even if you don't cook in it. Teflon and some related nonstick coatings are ubiquitous in consumer products. It's in your electronics, it's in your clothes, it's in your furniture, cosmetics, packaging. You may have seen a news story in the last week about the nonstick coatings on fast food wrappers, the greaseproof paper that they wrap your burger in. Consumer Reports published an investigation on those. So-called PFAS chemicals are potentially harmful in the human body, and Consumer Reports says they found them in concerning levels in some big-name fast food wrappers. As I understand it, Contemporary nonstick cookware is unlikely to have any meaningful amount of PFAS on or in it. However, those chemicals are involved in the production process back at the factory for those pans, and thus they do pose an environmental hazard. I think those are good enough reasons to minimize use of nonstick cookware. That's why I just keep one around, and I pretty much only use it for eggs and the occasional fish. And I use it because, as great as a great cast iron pan is, a seasoning coat is nothing compared to Teflon in the nonstick department. But I thank you for sticking around this far into the show. Get it? I tried to make this episode a little shorter and tighter than the previous episodes, and I tried moving the segment order around a bit. Let me know if you liked it better this way. For audience Q&A, for the time being, I am only accepting questions on the Apple Podcasts app. Leave a rating and a review there. That helps other people find the show. And when you leave a real review, also put in a question, and I will respond to the ones that I find interesting. There are some more good ones in there already that we might still get to. So do me a favor and subscribe to this show on your podcatcher of choice. I might not post this to my main YouTube channel forever, maybe to a second channel. Be well, eat well, and I'll talk to you next week. Be well, eat well is not going to be my permanent tagline. That makes me sound like a sleazy self-help guru. I will think of something better at some point. Talk to you next week.